It's always a, a really beautiful thing when God starts to stitch together um, our service. And Clive, I'm so grateful you've just preached my final uh, sermon point. Thank you for that. It's brilliant. It's really beautiful because um, now you'll only get three instead of four. Um, hang on. Hang on to what Clive shared from Scripture. You'll see uh, just how important that word was uh, in just a moment. So, uh, last weekend, if you're with us, we were looking at the famous story of Jacob's ladder. Uh, this weekend, we're going to continue with the story of Jacob. And Jacob, as we join him today, has um, completed his 500-mile journey. He's running away. Uh, he's running away because he stole his brother Esau's uh, birthright, if you know the story. His brother Esau, uh, his only intent was to murder him. So rightfully so, Jacob is hiding away, and he's gone to hang out with his uncle. Now, today's scripture reading comes with a sensitivity warning. Uh, it's a little awkward, as you'll discover, for all sorts of reasons. Um, on the surface, it just sounds like a story about polygamy, uh, a story of having multiple wives. Nothing wrong with that. Um, there's, even, <laughs> there's even a glimmer of romance in this story. But actually, if you dig just a little bit deeper, you discover it's even worse than that. Now, can I say from the offset this morning, I do not commend Jacob's model of dating to you, okay? I'd rather you went online or Tinder or somewhere else. Um, let's read together. Uh, Genesis chapter 29. Uh, keep your Bibles open because we're going to dig in and out of the text this morning. Uh, it says this from verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was very large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth, and then they would water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Did you get the pun there? He has stood by a well and he says, no, forget it. Yes, he is, they said. And uh, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. Uh, it's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Uh, it, it is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was talking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, just over the hill, for she was a shepherd. And then Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, and he went over and he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well on his own, and he watered uh, his uncle's sheep. So at the start of the story, it's all going really well. It's looking really good for Jacob. Jacob has had his encounter at Bethel. God has led him to the next place where he wants Jacob to be in his journey. And he finds himself in his uncle Laban's back uh, yard. Now, the beautiful Rachel appears over the hill just as Jacob happens to be flexing his muscles, uh, moving that really heavy stone all by himself. It's very convenient timing, isn't it? The sparks are flying. Jacob, the charming, nearly as muscular as his brother man, is showing off to the cute girl. Uh, and he's such a gentleman, he even offers to care for her sheep. Cue the string section. Put the camera for a moment into slow motion. And let's move in for a close-up uh, as verse 11 continues uh, the story and the romance continues to build. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Ugh. <laughs> 
He told Rachel that he was a relative of uh, her father and son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he rushed to meet him. He embraced him and he kissed him. There's a heck of a lot of kissing going on here, isn't he? Uh, And he brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all about the things he'd done. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. So at this point, we get to meet Laban, who is Jacob's uncle. Now, actually, we've met Laban before. If you read back in Genesis chapter 4, you'll discover that Laban, uh, Laban is a man who really loves to work the angles. Uh, Laban is a bit of a wheeler dealer. Imagine Del Boy, and you've kind of got the right image in your head. Laban is a man who loves to make a quick buck and loves to fill his wallet. So Jacob, we hear, tells Laban about his story. Now, you can imagine that Jacob has probably told Laban everything. He's told him about his deceit. What's Laban's response? Jacob, you're my own flesh and blood. Would you please come and stay with us? Your family, come and stay with us for a bit. And then it's from verse 14, after Jacob has stayed with Laban for about a month, that Laban starts to show his true colors. Laban says to Jacob, just because you're a relative of mine, why should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, there's an old saying that goes something a bit like this. Guests and fish stink after three days. Both guests and fish stink after three days. In other words, if you're a guest in somebody's home, go before day four because you'll start to stink. And there's definitely something very stinky about this situation. I mean, when was the last time your employer said to you, hey, what salary would you like me uh, to pay you? What would you like to earn? You name it and it's yours. You see, Jacob, the master deceiver, is about to get deceived by an even more masterful deceiver in the form of Laban. Well, let's read on. The, The plot starts to thicken like a good gravy. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters Uh, The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, uh, Rachel. So we hear Jacob only has eyes for Rachel. He's not interested in Leah. So he makes this um, incredible offer that he will work for Laban for seven years free of charge in exchange for Rachel as his bride. I mean, this must be love, isn't it? Could you imagine working for nothing for seven years just so that you could spend the rest of your life with the one that you love? I mean, honestly, really? Could you imagine doing that? Well, let's read on. We'll see what happens. Verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. They seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her. Anyone else blushing uh, at this moment? That was some romance, wasn't it? If seven years felt like just a few days. But it's not hard to imagine, is it? As you get to the end of those seven years, that Jacob must have been tired of the waiting. And then all of a sudden, we get to verse 22, and the story takes a really unexpected turn. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. 
But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is it that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. Now, Jacob here is understandably outraged. He's waited for seven long years, and in one evening, and by the way, Jacob was probably blind drunk, okay? Just in case you're trying to imagine what was going on and how, was it just a dark room? He was probably blind drunk, and he gets tricked big time. Now, I want us to pause for a moment here and spare a thought for Leah. Leah is somebody who's got emotions. Leah is somebody who is a human being. Maybe now's a good time to recognize the cross-cultural elephant that's in the room amongst us, that in our day, it is never, ever okay to treat women in this kind of a way, to treat women as a commodity. But back in the ancient world, it was common practice. Now, you can discuss the rights and the wrongs, or in fact, the wrongs and the wrongs of all that over lunch. But aside from the commodification of women here, which we need to acknowledge... I want to suggest to us that this is a brilliant story for so many reasons, but it's a brilliant story because it is absolutely dripping with irony. God is about to take a really bad situation, and he is about to use it for good. God is going to use this situation to help Jacob start to walk the the narrow path that leads towards life rather than walk the wide path, which only ever leads to destruction. The story, at least for now, comes to a dramatic close in verse 27. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years' work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant uh, Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. Well, you can imagine, can't you, if those first seven years felt like just a few days, those second seven years must have felt like an absolute eternity, as Jacob was just wanting to get on with his life with his wife, or at least the wife he wanted, Rachel. Now, there's a question for us this morning, is this, how many of us actually enjoy waiting for things. The truth is, of course, is not one of us enjoys waiting for anything, and yet it's estimated, there's research done on this, that Brits spend on average six and a half years of their lives waiting, just waiting for things, six and a half years. We wait in queues at the supermarket, we wait for a doctor, we wait for a spouse, we wait for a baby, we wait for retirement, we wait for sermons to end, we wait for Jesus uh, to come again. Waiting can seem like a complete waste of time. Six and a half of your years, you will spend waiting. And yet, waiting can be, if we will allow it to be, the process by which we can become who and what God wants us to be. Waiting can be the process by which God enables us to become who and what he wants us to be. You see, what God does in us is just as important as the thing that we are waiting for. What God does in us whilst we're waiting is just as important as the thing we're waiting for. 
Now, we said that as a church from the very beginning uh, of our build project journey. We said that the process of this journey, however long it takes, is just as important as the end destination when the building is complete. And I can say to you, it's been a really long wait for us, hasn't it, with the build project. It's been a really long journey, but also it's been a fruitful journey. We've discovered things about ourselves and we've discovered things about God as we've journeyed along, and that's been really beneficial. Just on the theme of our build project, by the way, we're going to be sharing news over the next couple of weeks, which I think is really exciting. We are about to enter the final furlong. Everything is ready and we're good to go, apart from a small amount of money shortfall, which we'll talk about in the weeks that are ahead of us. But we're heading into the final furlong. You see, waiting, biblical waiting, is not just passive hanging around for something that will happen, that will eventually enable us to escape our troubles, but waiting does not mean doing nothing. Waiting in God's economy is never ever wasted time. Waiting is working. Think of a a farmer for just a moment. He will wait all summer for his harvest, but whilst he's waiting, there's loads of other things that he needs to be busy doing in and around the farm. Some of you are are, are really keen gardeners. Uh, God bless you. Now, because you're the most patient people alive, now that spring has come, I'm imagining that you're delighting in all the amazing things that are bursting out of the soil in your gardens. I imagine, and I can only imagine, that this is a very exciting time of the year for those of you who are gardeners. But you realize, don't you, that in your waiting, something has been happening behind the scenes, in fact, under the soil, that you had no clue really was going on and you had no control over. But something was happening, and now all of a sudden, spring has come, and these things are bursting. I think they're called flowers. These things are bursting uh, out of your garden. But all through the winter, in the winter of your waiting, you will have been busy doing other things. If we can positively embrace waiting, then waiting can be a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and yes, sometimes painful, sometimes frustrating process of learning to trust God even more. Now, for the sake of this morning, we're going to overlook all of the issues around sister and wife and servant swapping. Continue to read the story. You'll see that goes on. Uh, That will be a sermon for another day. Mysteriously, Kay is on the plan to talk about that one. She's not really. But today, I want us to focus on Jacob's experience of 14 years of waiting. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is this, is what does waiting achieve and what should we do when God says to us, wait, my timing is always perfect, trust in my delays because I've got this. Four things, remember, relinquish, retreat, and renew. So the first thing, remember, waiting requires trust. Now, most of us live our lives, don't we, by the old adage, don't just stand there, do something. But I wonder if sometimes, maybe oftentimes, God says to us, would you please wait and would you please stop trying to organize the world, which, by the way, I am perfectly in control of. Would you just trust me? God says that to me often. He says to me, Chris, would you please stop interfering? Now, when it comes to matters of faith, waiting means that we need to be willing to give God the benefit of the doubt that he does actually know what he's doing and he knows when best to do it. But I think our ability to wait reveals something too about how much we trust God. Just maybe if we're willing to wait more, then maybe it's a sign that we trust God more. 
Jacob here in our story waits seven years and then another seven years, 14 complicated and confusing years. But waiting can be a great tool in the hands of a loving God. Waiting sometimes is God's way of seeing whether or not we actually trust him enough before he then enables us to move forward in the plans and the purposes that he has for us in his perfect timing. Whether that's to do with our relationships, our finances, our careers, with our dreams, with our church, or whatever, there's a challenge, I think, for us to trust that God really does know what he's doing. And I wonder what it is that you're currently waiting for. Every single one of us will be waiting for something. What is it that you're waiting for? But two, I wonder whether or not you trust God enough to wait for him, or are you tempted to try and wrestle control out of his hands? I think there's a challenge in our text this morning not to resent times of waiting, but maybe just to embrace times of waiting. Maybe even enjoy them. Maybe such an approach will enable our times of waiting, even if it's seven years, to feel just like a few moments. I wonder what you're waiting for today. Maybe it's a breakthrough. Maybe you're waiting for healing. Maybe you're waiting for direction. You're waiting for your prayers to be answered. Is it possible that we can embrace and maybe even enjoy the seizing of waiting which is before us? Psalm 27 verse 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong. It takes strength to wait for God. God, would you make us strong? Would you help us wait? And then the psalmist says, take heart and wait for the Lord. So firstly, remember, we can remember God's faithfulness in the past when we've had seasons of needing to wait, and it's a reminder to us that God is still faithful today. Secondly, relinquish. Waiting requires um, surrender, the surrender of control. Now, let's be really honest for a moment. Waiting can be really frustrating, can't it? Especially if you're like me and you're a task-orientated person. I wonder if you ever find yourself saying to God, okay, God, I'm going to wait really patiently, but would you please make it quick? And whilst I'm waiting, would you please give me something worthwhile to do in the waiting? And I have a sense that so often when I say that kind of thing to God, his response goes something like this. While you wait, would you take on, Chris, the active role of being a watchman? Would you let me do the things that I need to do? The psalmist in Psalm 130 comes to exactly the same conclusion. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. I wait for the Lord, I wait, and I put hope in his word. And then he says, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. In biblical times, watchmen would vigilantly guard the city. For a watchman, waiting was literally their work. They watched for enemies who might attack at night. They would wait for the sun to come up. They were alert. They were obedient. They were ready to respond when they needed. But here's the thing I've learned. Watchmen could not make things happen. They didn't control the rising of the sun. They didn't control when the enemy might come and appear over the horizon. They, in fact, couldn't speed up the process of the dawning of the new day. Here's the thing, a watchman knew the difference between his job and God's job. And I have to confess to you, that's an area of my life where I so need to grow. I need to recognize what's my job and what is God. You see, waiting reminds me that I am not in charge. Waiting reminds me that I need to relinquish control. I need to take my hands off the steering wheel. God reminds me often that I am not God. 
And so often he does that as I wait. Waiting reminds me that without God, I am nothing. You see, I'm a fixer. I want to get everything done. I want to get it really sorted. But God says to me often, fixing and controlling situations is like trying to speed up the rising of the sun. Maybe today in your waiting, that thing that you've brought to mind, God would just say to you, would you please take your hands off the steering wheel? I'm a very competent driver. I do not need you driving from the passenger seat today. Maybe God would say to you, would you have the attitude of a watchman or a watchwoman? Would you be confident? Would you be alert? Would you be expectant? But would you allow God, God to work and only respond when he invites you to? Relinquish. Thirdly, retreat. Waiting allows God to work. Now, a few weeks back, I was reminded of the story at a Baptist minister's gathering of uh, the missionary William Carey. He founded the, the BMS. And do you remember he said, expect great things and attempt great things. Expect great things and attempt great things. And he did. Way back in 1972, he founded BMS. And if you know the story, William Carey waited for seven long years in India, his first mission placement, before he ever saw a convert. Seven years of sowing the seed of the gospel. Seven years of courageously proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior. Seven years before he saw any tangible fruit for his labor. And you know, I can feel William Carey's pain in the waiting can I share a confession of a church leader with you? Most of the time, I am desperate to speed up growth in the life of a church. Desperate. Most of the time, I am desperate that we would be way more effective in our outreach ministry. I am permanently impatient for more. And sometimes I question God, God, why not now? Why not bring about revival in our town today? Why not start building that new building over the road so that we can be even more effective in our mission and our ministry? Why didn't we start that yesterday, God? But this is what I know. God's timing is best. And in the waiting, God is always, always, always working behind the scenes. That's what William Carey discovered. God is always at work behind the scenes. It's what I've discovered time and time again. And I feel really challenged by Jacob's story for this reason. Did you notice anything missing in Jacob's story as I read it to you? God was missing. At least he's never mentioned in 30 verses of Scripture. Now, I find that bizarre because not so long ago, Jacob met God at Bethel and God had said to him, I am with you and I'll watch over you wherever you go. Now, presumably that meant in Haran as well. And yet God is not consulted and God is never mentioned. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm part of a small group or I'm part of this prayer gathering, I can be really reluctant to ask for prayer when things are going really, really well. And it feels a little bit like that with Jacob's story. He's just seen, heard, he's just heard from God and had this extraordinary promise. God has led him to the place where he needs to be. He's just met a beautiful girl. He's gained a place where he can call home for a season. Life was good. What more could Jacob ask of God in this moment? Why on earth would Jacob need prayer? But if you continue to read the story and you see how things unfold, you discover that even in the ordinary circumstances of life, even when our lives are extraordinarily blessed, we still need to pray God into our stories. We still need to invite God to be part of that story. Jacob could have prayed here in this moment, couldn't he, for God's continued blessing and wisdom, but never once did he offer such 
of prayer. God, it seems, is absent in Jacob's thinking. I wonder how his story might have been different of in, even in those good times had he invited God into the story. The lesson we learn is very clear. Since God is always with us, we must pray him into our stories. Don't leave him out even in the good times. And then finally, Clive's sermon point, point four. Waiting increases our strength. Those words that originate in Isaiah, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. It's a promise. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will, it's a promise, run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You see, there's a hidden benefit in waiting. Is when we wait before God, God is making us strong. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And as I finish, I just want to invite you today just to bring to mind as we head into a time of waiting, a time of response, a time of prayer. I just want to invite you now just to bring to mind one thing maybe that you're waiting for. And as you bring to mind that one thing, and maybe you've been waiting for it for a very, very long time, maybe even more than 7 or 14 years. As you bring it to mind, would you remember God's past faithfulness in your life? He is a faithful God who always does what he promises. Maybe as you think about that one thing, you just maybe need to recognize that you're being a backseat driver, a passenger driver. Take your hands off the steering wheel for a moment. Would you allow God to be in control of that particular circumstance? Sense God would give us the challenge this morning not to resent that time of waiting, even if it's been really long. But maybe embrace it and maybe even enjoy it. And can I remind you this morning that in the waiting for God's perfect timing, and he does know what he's doing, his timing is always perfect. God is making you strong. He's making you strong. And just maybe today things are great for you. Don't leave God out of your story. Invite him in. Make room for him. we be still? Let's just be really quiet for a moment. Let's wait upon the Lord this morning. See what he might say to us about that circumstance that we're holding in our minds. Here's God's word for you this morning over that situation from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Would you surrender? Hold nothing back. Lean not on your own understanding, on your good ideas to help God out. Lean not on that understanding. But in all of your ways, submit to him. 
and he will make your paths straight. moments of response we're going to sing a song together and it's a song that says to God God I'm going to make room for you God I'm not going to shut you out I'm not going to leave you out I will do whatever you want me to do And maybe for you this morning this is a moment over that circumstance that you hold to say to God God I'm going to lay down my agenda going to lay down my good ideas and instead I'm going to pursue your great ideas for my life. Choose this song as a song of response to say to God, God, I'm going to journey with you and I'm going to wait for your perfect sovereign timing in my life. Stay seated as we respond. Here is where I lay down Every burden, every crown This is my surrender This is my surrender Here is where I lay down Every lie and every doubt This is my surrender And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. And I will make room for you to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. tradition, break down the walls of all my religion, your way is better, your way is better, shake up the ground of all my tradition, break down the walls of all my religion, your way is better, 
Do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to, and I will make room for you, to do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to, and I will make room. To do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to, and I will make room for you. To do whatever you want to, to do whatever you want to. Yeah, Father God, we are here in your presence. making room for you, Lord. And we just desire to encounter you. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. For the things in our lives, Lord, that you would want to put your finger on this morning, Father, would you minister to those areas for each one of us?